The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, episode 826 for Monday, July 27th, 2020. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We share your questions, tips, and cool stuff found, and we try to get answers to your questions. If we can provide them, great. If somebody on the feed or uh, listening can provide them, even better. We share your quick tips. We share our quick tips. We share cool stuff found. The goal is for each and every one of us to learn at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Otherworld Computing with a new product we're going to talk about at MaxSales.com, MintMobile.com slash MGG, and ExpressVPN.com slash MGG. We'll tell you why we would like you to visit all those URLs uh, in a minute here. But for now, here in Durham, New Hampshire... I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How are you doing, Mr. John F. Braun? You know. Just okay? Staying inside, keeping cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's Just true. Okay. Yeah, it's it's hot out. Yeah, man, it's crazy. All right. Well, um... Why don't we take it to a quick tip, John? I think we have a few today, and you're going to kick us off with listener David, if uh, if memory serves. Yes. And here's David's tale of woe. After receiving a new card from my bank because of a breach, I added the new card to wallet. After calling the bank to authorize a new card, the wallet still showed the card needed to be authorized. After several months... To see if it was a network propagation problem and me keeping forgetting to do it, except when I tried Apple Pay at a store, it was still showing. So I recalled the bank. They said it was OK on their end. So I called Apple support at their suggestion. After trying the troubleshooting steps, they suggested rebooting the phone, updating the phone to 13.6 with no joy. I tried removing and re-adding the card to wallet. This worked. I will try calling the bank back to let them know what my fix is. Uh, at, at a point where it's not going to take me an hour to get a person on the phone. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, every, uh, every once in a great while, I, I have this too. And mm. I found, uh, I guess like he did, it sounds like the signal, the bat signal, if, if you will, uh, didn't make it to the bank. And I've had this sometimes too, is that I'll receive a new card. And until I do whatever magic activation, which is typically either a web page or calling on the phone right you know a phone number that they know yeah yeah um, yeah. until i do that and it's funny because one time i actually did this so i got a card and it had a new design and until i did the activation the card in my wallet would not uh, once i activated then the graphic changed which i thought was kind of cool but yeah every oh, now and then cool. you get a hiccup with with apple pay but for the most part i i rarely have have an issue um it's funny because I actually sometimes I, I would, you know, uh, I've kind of stopped collecting credit cards for a while. I was going on a binge sure. there getting different ones. Sure. But uh, it was funny because I actually had one one time where I was able to add it to my wallet without having the physical card, which I thought was kind of cool. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I, well, I mean, if you if you know all the details, right, you can you just type. Them right. In. And that's the trick is that um 
yeah, I forgot what, what exactly I did to determine what the number was. But once I did that, it, uh, yeah. Yeah, that makes I sense. I had a card. I had a card in my wallet before I had the physical card, which who uses those anyways, right? I try not to. Yeah, especially these days. You know, the, the contactless payment means a whole lot more right now than it than it did when when this started to be a thing. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, what I find interesting oh. is that the cards that I've received lately, Dave, are contactless. Mm, right. For a while, the banks were so, you know, they migrated to the, you know, the smart card, you know, with the uh, the, the chip. Sure. Um, but also, I, I've noticed that my cards as of late will embed RF in in the card as well. You see a little, you know, the little RF icon. Right. Which indicates that, hey, you can use this instead of your phone. Right. I, right. Yeah, and I've actually had to do that in one case. It was funny. When I used... Uh, Redbox is weird, is that if I use my phone to check in because they're now adding RF, it's like, huh? But if I use the physical card itself, it's like, oh, I know who you are. So that's Oh, interesting. Weird. Well, it, it, is it that, you know, like with, with Apple pay, you are, you get a unique card ID for each of your cards, like a, a unique card number Yes, for each Distinct of your cards. From- for each device. So like your watch is different from your phone, even though it's all, you know, like your same Amex card or whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if RFID actually advertises a different number than the the number that would say be mm-hmm. be scanned by the barcode or, or the, the mag stripe or whatever. So, yeah. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Getting things into wallet is always a pain. I, I have a bunch of Citibank cards. I've been a Citibank customer for a very long time. And um, every time I add a Citibank card to like the, the wallet on say my watch, if I reset things or whatever, I get letters in the mail three days later telling me you added no. a thing. And it's like, guys, like th- it's kind of defeats the purpose. Like don't, you don't have to send me a look. I wish I could tell them. Don't send me a letter, but there doesn't, I've asked. They're like, yeah, that's just how our system works. I'm like, cool. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Um, Lauren brings us a quick tip. He says uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when you were talking about the uh, four finger swipe, not the five finger swipe uh, to get a second space to work on my Mac. He says, I mentioned how I use spaces all the time to access items on my desktop while other programs are running. Rather than minimizing or hiding the program, I will just swipe over to the next space to get an unobstructed view of my desktop. He said, yesterday I was looking at videos using Quick Look instead of QuickTime Player, and I swiped over to a new space to rename another file on the desktop. I was surprised to see that uh, the Quick Look screen followed me over to the new space and to every other space I switched to. He says, I love it when I discover unexpected but consistent behaviors on my mac so yeah there's two right one is is the tip of just you know don't worry about minimizing windows just jump to a new space and and you've got a nice clean screen and then the other is interestingly some things will follow you uh quick look being one of them so yeah thank you that's uh we like it good good Cool stuff found time, John and listener Michael brings us the first one here. He tells us about an app called ETER4, which is um, a PGP app for iOS. So allowing you to do PGP encryption very easily 
on iOS. He says, uh, now with this update they just did, it sits in your sharing sheet on iOS and you can send any encrypted text to it and it will open. You can encrypt it and then send it anywhere. He says it will also take encrypted text from emails uh, that can be copied and pasted and decrypted. He says, so it's a great in-between app for encrypting and decrypting stuff easily on iOS. So that seems to be the right way to do it. If you want to use Apple mail to send and receive your, uh, you know, your, your PGP emails, this ETER four sits as a share sheet. So you can just like, you know, bounce things back and forth since mail on iOS doesn't currently at least allow plugins. So I like that. And he sent us the, the emails. We were emailing back and forth. That's how he, he got this to us, of course, at feedback at Mac And, uh, and, and that's how, uh, and it worked like, you know, we were just no problem because we were using GPG on the Mac. So. Wow. Did I hear you right, Dave? Did you say feedback at com? I did. It wasn't encrypted when I said it. So that's, uh, that's why you heard it. That's right. I think, I don't know. It's good. All right. Uh, I have a couple of cool things that I got to mess with this week. Two things from, from glyph, John, um, G L Y P H for those of you following along at home, the, uh, there's two of them. There's the Atom Pro SSD. I, I tested out their one terabyte version. This is this is actually why I reached out to Glyph because we've been testing all the various Thunderbolt three SSDs, and uh, and and this one performs exactly as I would have expected. Very very. It's got it's a nice rugged case. It's got a removable cable that fits into sort of the rubberized casing around the drive. So you can, you can use it with different cables, but it has its own cable and carries it with it. So it's nice to kind of throw in a travel bag or whatever. Um, but uh, you know, it's Thunderbolt three. So my test showed I was getting, I'm looking at my notes here, 2300 megabytes per second reads and 2100 megabytes per second writes. Uh, so, you know, like it, it does what it's supposed to do and, uh, and it rocks. It's pretty good. And then, but the, the thing that really kind of blew me, so it, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of the, the Atom Pro SSD. It's a great SSD and it, it does all and all that and more. I really kind of like the, the form factor with the removable cable, but a place to store it. But the thing that really blew me away was the Atom Raid SSD, which was a product I didn't even know about, John. And what they've done here, it, it, it is a rated thing. It's USB-C and USB-3. So it will work with Thunderbolt 3, but it also works with just uh, USB-3. And, it, and it'll do 10 gig USB if, uh, if you're connecting it to a port that will support that. It's, it's tiny. Even the four terabyte one is tiny. It's probably two thirds the size of the already very portable Atom Pro SSD and it, it, you know, it supports like I, I tested it out on a, a 10 gig USB port and it was doing I was getting like 850 megabyte per second reads, like 800 megabyte per second writes. And, you know, like I was really um, I really kind of it blew me away. I, this, you know, because you're able to get four terabytes in, in a fast portable and i mean for four terabytes on amazon you're going to pay 880 bucks so i mean it, it, it you are paying for four terabytes of ssd but it's not like not a huge premium I mean, really actually that's quite a bit less than you would pay for four terabytes of ssd in some other places so um so i was, yeah, I was you know 
it's interesting. This, that I, I can see why when I was talking with them, they're like, you should know about this. I'm like, I agree. I had no idea. It's pretty cool, huh? Mr. Braun? Yeah. yeah. Raid. Yes. Yeah, it's well, it's rated. It's two M.2 SSDs in a RAID zero, right? So mm-hmm. it, that's how they're getting the space in and the speed in there is by by doing it that way, which makes a lot of sense. So I don't know. Thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Can you open it up and put in bigger ones? No. Or no, it's. I mean, it's a. It's an enclosed thing. It's pretty small. Mm-hmm. And and no, it it's not. It's not an enclosure for you to mess with. It's just that they're using RAID okay. to get you the storage space and speed that they're delivering to yeah. you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's pretty good. You know, it's a, it's a smart way of doing it. Um, because it, like I said, it gets you those speeds and it's in a nice little portable rugged thing. So yeah, yeah, I can, I can see why people love this thing. So it's pretty good. Uh, questions, thoughts on that before we move on, Mr. Braun? No. Cool. Sounds good. All right. Uh, and then listener David here, uh, reminded us of an app that we talked about once, um, not that long ago, but. I think we kind of, I sort of, I lost track of it, called Lifespan from Micromat, the people that bring us tech tool and all of that fun stuff. Um, It keeps track of and reports uh, the lifespan of your, um, any SSDs or flash storage that you have connected because they report that, uh, the devices report that via uh, smart, I think, right? And so this tracks Mm -hmm. that and will alert you if things are getting, you know, low on their uh, their lifespan. So I thought that, I, you know, it's pretty good. Any thoughts on, on any of that, Mr. Braun? No. Have, have you used lifespan? The OS. No, I didn't because I, I, I knew that, that if I wanted that number, um, I could get it by looking at the smart. Right. Stats. Yeah. So, no, I suppose if I had a SSD that was really old, I probably run it. But uh, my SSDs are still young spring chickens. So right, yeah, I ran it on mine in the uh, in the twenty what is it a twenty late twenty fourteen Retina MacBook Pro, MacBook uh, Retina iMac sorry that I have down in the oh, office, right. and it, you know it said it was like eighty five percent or whatever. And it's like okay, you know that, that's that's good. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What's the oldest SSD you're running these days? I guess you really don't have something all that old. You just, you just went through a major series of updates, right? Yeah. And my externals, um, though I have the SSDs, I have the one terabyte SSDs that, uh, I had in my prior machines. Um, and I'm reusing those, I think for, uh, backups of running betas and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're, Two years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should, uh, I should run, run this. uh, Yeah, it's worth, it's worth checking out for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, while we're on the subject of SSDs, John, I want to go and we have some questions about SSDs and listener Scott brings us to something that I, that I was going to discuss anyway, (laughs) because I've been running into some weirdness. 
And so Scott says, I just removed an SSD from a dead PC to use as an external drive on uh, on a Mac. The SSD is fine. The power supply on the PC is dead. The burning question for me is which format to use for the drive. The paranoid voice is saying to use Mac OS journaled HFS plus because it is tried, true and stable. Then there's the future proofing side that says APFS is the future. And I might have to reformat the drive someday to support that. All my systems are running Catalina. So that's not the issue here. He says the disc will be encrypted because my paranoia ignores any option that does not say encrypted. Should I just use APFS or should I give into my paranoia? So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I probably would have just said, oh, yeah, go with APFS. You know, it's an SSD. APFS is great on SSDs. So let's, you know, let's just do that. It, you know, you're not worried about compatibility. No problem. But I've been running into some really weird things with SSDs and specifically the free space that is reported. You brought this up last week in the show, John, when you were having mm -hmm. an issue uh, with, you know, free space reporting. I think you had a listener that, that you were working with that, that had one and then and then you were having it yourself. And I ran into it this week, too. In fact, right here in the studio, I I record our um, all of my sort of in progress media so our podcast audio our podcast video now any scratch tracks that i'm working on for like music projects you know like actually we're doing um, we might be doing another thing with the macworld all-star band i don't want to let too many cats out of the bag but we had fun doing the first one so you know those types of things i store on a you know fast ssd i've got an owc aura ssd up here and, and i store my stuff on that and i formatted it as apfs i carved out a portion of it to be my um, my clone so that it, so for that, it must be APFS because Catalina can only boot from APFS, but you know, the, and then the other part therefore is an APFS volume. And I'm thinking about changing it and moving my clone to something else. And the reason is I cannot get the finder to report free space for me, John. I, and I've rebooted the Mac. I've, you know, I, and I emptied hundreds of gigabytes off of, I, you know, I, I deleted like scratch files and moved things around, emptied the trash and my free space remained at 41 gigabytes free. Nothing I did could get this to change. I tried launching carbon copy cloner to see if there were uh, uh, snapshots, right? Nope. Mm -hmm. No snapshots like to speak of that were big or anything, nothing, right. I'm not having time machine back up this drive. So it's like, I am cloning it on a daily basis, just so everybody knows. So I'm not losing this data, but um, you know, cloning it off to my disk station or whatever. And you uh, ran disk first aid, right? I did. Uh huh. Didn't fix it. Oh, and Still, that didn't release it. Okay. No, no. Mm. But this morning when I came in here, I'm like, you know, 41 gigs, it's going to be tight when, when we record the episode. Cause you know, it's usually somewhere between 30 and say 50 gigs of, of uh, video that, that gets recorded raw here. And then I, you know, usually I just pitch it cause you know, we have the YouTube and Facebook copies and it's like, yeah, that's all we need. But you know, I like to have backups. I look Mimo live, the app that we use to report, record our video reports that there are 200 or were now there's less uh, reports that there were 280 gigabytes free on this. So it could see it. Right. That's the part that made me scratch my but head. The finder was not reporting it properly. Correct. <laughs> yes. 
Well, that's bizarre. I I agree. Like, what is this? I don't, I don't know. So, and then, you know, there's the whole thing about APFS is not as fast as HFS plus, right? For raw data transfers. Now, obviously, if you're duplicating files and doing things like that, APFS has lots of benefits that, that make it more efficient in that way. But if for storing raw data, I'm not convinced that I should be using APFS. I feel like I should be using HFS plus. So anyway, I'd be, I'd be curious to hear if anybody has any, any thoughts about any of that. So I don't know. Feedback at MacGeekup.com. That's what we say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, another thing, John, do you have any thoughts on that mm-hmm. before we, before I bring us in another direction here? No, I haven't run into it often, but it is an annoying feature of APFS. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. I, I like, I, I, I understand if it's the snapshots and, and in our chat room at live.macgeekup.com, Brian Rose asking, do you need, see any space that says purgeable? And I don't. Um, so I don't know what's going on here, but if I do it, like if I do it from the, the, uh, uh, terminal, you know, DF dash H or whatever it is, let me look at the, let me find it here. Uh, it says, yeah, the, the numbers don't make sense. It says there's 894 gigs total, 478 used. And at the moment, nine gigs available. So this could get interesting real soon now, folks. So, um, but yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it. Ah, anyway, you know, that's, that's how it goes. I suppose. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I want to bring us in another direction. Do we have any other thoughts on this, John? Nope. Okay. I'm going to make the case for a nuke and pave then, John, because when I installed lifespan on my Mac downstairs, as I mentioned, everything worked great. It showed what was going on. I have one spindle drive attached uh, to that, that I have like my music library and some things. It's just a big drive sitting there um, that I have sort of all those things that don't need to move very quickly. And lifespan is only for SSDs, so it doesn't report anything on that drive. In fact, it says it ignores it. However, uh, it makes as soon as I launched lifespan, the I was playing music, so I was reading from that drive because I often have music going at my desk. My music paused when it uh, when it enabled its monitor. I was like, "This is weird." And then, and it was like beach balling and all of that stuff. And I, with the finder, I couldn't read the drive. And then suddenly it was fine. And then five minutes later, back to the beach balls. It's like, okay, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. Turned off lifespan monitor. Problem went away immediately. So I contacted support. And they're like, can you send us a, um, a, a, a system information report. Like we want to take a look at what's going on in your system. I'm like, yeah, of course. So, you know, I trust those guys. I sent them a, a system information report and they came back and they said, you are running an old version of the uh, sat smart driver probably came with drive DX years ago, but that version is not Catalina compatible. You need to install the new version of the sat smart driver extension and maybe that'll solve the problem. Now it turns out that didn't solve my problem. Uh, but it highlighted the fact that, you know, I've been updating that machine for a very long time 
And with that is the convenience of not having to rebuild my Mac. But also with that is the inconvenience of bringing all those little needles along in the haystack. So, yeah, I don't know. It's um, it's one of those things, John. So the, the case for the nuke and pave, I think, is is the um, it might be time down there, because as I was looking through system extensions, you know, in the uh, in the in the system information report, I saw a lot of them that were old. Now, what I haven't done is compared those to a fresh install of Catalina, because it's entirely possible that, you know, even Apple is bundling extensions that are, you know, from 2011 if they don't need to be updated for whatever reason. So I don't want to just go and start willy nilly trying to, you know, nix extensions. But it does kind of bring up the point of, hmm, is it is it time? You know, it might be time. That's that's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking, John. When what what are your thoughts on all this? Uh, every now and then, yeah. I'll run system info and yeah, look through the various categories in the software category, and, yeah, uh, or just manually sometimes you know dig in your system folder and uh, you know take a look at things. It's like, do I need this? Or? Yeah. Wow, that's really old. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's really old. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But no, I haven't haven't done a nuke and pave in quite a while. Okay, both, both of my new machines, I did migration. Okay, okay. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Maybe right. I should, because yeah, I had a weird thing happen uh, this morning. I don't know if it's do maybe a nuke and pave would help it but no i got all these uh you told me you had this too i i don't know what brought this on but as soon as i turned my machine on or woke it up because i typically sleep the mini or actually okay. both machines i typically sure. sleep i rarely turn them off but sure once it woke up it was asking for passwords like it, it was it was sending me a flurry of oh keychain needs this keychain needs this and oh. i'm like what why interesting Huh. I don't know if it's a, and the way I solved that was shut the machine down and restart. Yeah. Yeah. I had my iMac, uh, rebooted yesterday. I don't remember if I rebooted it or if it rebooted on its own, but when it came back up, it was asking to log in to everything again. And I found that odd. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. So maybe there was an iCloud thing yesterday that, that, caused our machines to think they weren't logged in and therefore asked us, okay, go log in. Cause on the, on the iMac, by the time I did it, you know, I had like the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the little badge that, you know, the, the red number one on system preferences, like I need you to come do something here. It's like, okay. So I went in and it was on Apple ID. So I clicked on Apple ID and it said, you need to log in again. I'm like, okay. So I hit continue. And I watched my CPUs, you know, spike for a little bit. And then the red badge went away, but it never asked me for my password. So I'm not entirely sure what happened there, but it was interesting nonetheless. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. What, uh, what else we got? Anything more on this one or is it time to move on to, uh, to Ken here? Okay. Moving on. Moving on to Ken. Okay. Interesting. Am I having, I'm having weird network issues here um, today. I think we're making it through the show. All right. 
but I am definitely having local, like in my house network issues here, John. I'm not entirely happy about it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like maybe a switch needs to be reset, but I'm, I'm not too keen on doing that in the middle of the show. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to let it slide for a little bit here, but you know, things aren't quite right. We'll see. You're, you're able to hear me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can hear you. All right. So we will, uh, we will live with it, but yeah, I'm getting like, like either like I'm occasionally getting packet loss in my own network here, which is, shouldn't be happening. So I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. And actually we've been having, I've had some outages as of late. I don't know if it's because everybody's using the internet. Sure. Sure. Days. But, um, it was funny though, actually the, I detected it, or uh, I didn't detect it. You know, it did, Dave. It was kind of funny. So here's a, a little tip. But um, so all of a sudden, I got a thing notification, probably from my thing box on my phone. And this has happened a couple of times, and it was really weird because I got a notification. <laughs> it was in Spanish. What? It was like the Spanish equivalent of, yeah. um, I think there's, uh, your, your internet, uh, the internet in your area is, is acting up. There's like a minor problem. And I'm like, why is it in Spanish? And I was actually able to solve the problem on their uh, support board. So I'm like, why is it in Spanish? And there were like two or three articles and they're like, oh, you got to go, you got to log into your account and then go to settings and choose the language. I'm like, yeah, well, why did it default to Spanish? Yeah, why? I mean, your system. I, w- I wasn't the only one this happened to. It was funny. Huh. Yeah, because your Mac so will it was advertise a on their it. website. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So, so I don't know what. Yeah, so that was the weird thing. It's like you know why 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 would it report it in Spanish? I think huh. it's a bug on their end, but I'm I'm not the only one that ran into it. But it's you know, I mean, fortunately, I could read Spanish, so I kind of knew what it was saying, but. uh Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So if you get your finger alerts in Spanish, you gotta, you gotta go to your account and change the language default language. That's weird. Yeah. Why wouldn't it just inherit that from Mac OS's cause Mac OS will advertise that mm-hmm. to any app that asks. Yeah. Huh? Interesting. Cool. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, you know, but it good that it alerted you to the outage. So that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's helpful. Yeah, I find I find thing very good for that. Like I know immediately if we've had any issues, it's that thing boxes. It's a it you know, it I would if I was still doing a lot of consulting, I feel like the thing box is something I would consider installing on, you know, those client networks where I need to know what's going on kind of at all times. That would be a really handy thing because it could alert me, you know, I don't know. I, it just seems like one of those things that, that could be super handy uh, to have out there. So, yeah, it, what would be even better is if I think there are boxes that do this. If the thing box had a VPN server that uh, obviously with passwords and everything, but that I could get into then it would be like, all right, I'm going to put this one box on your network. It's going to let me monitor things. And if I need to get in, it's going to, you know, it's, it's a path to let me in. Cause then it doesn't matter what router they're using and things like that. I can just po- forward some ports to it or it could do it with UPnP or whatever. So, yeah, I'm curious actually, if anybody knows of anything that does that, let us know. Um, that would be, 
I, I feel like I've heard of things that do this. So it'd be nice to find one, if especially something in that relatively affordable range. So, all right. Um, yeah, let's, let's talk to Ken here. Ken asks, he says, uh, I've waited too long and my 2009 iMac is just too slow and giving me problems. I've put off getting a desktop for the house since the iPads and the MacBook pro that we have work so well, I can't wait for Apple Silicon iMacs and probably don't want to get the first ones. So how about I get a new Intel Mac with low specs for now? I would get a higher iMac like the 27-inch models with three terabytes of storage, but there's a huge wait time for custom orders, and I need to get going in August. He says, I expanded my present Mac with additional memory and a three-terabyte drive. The best I can do for the new iMac is a 4K, 8-gig, 1-terabyte model that can be delivered in a day or two. Apple stores in New York are pretty much still closed, he says. Here's the main question. I have all my media, docs, photos, music, etc. on this iMac. I have more than a one terabyte drive will hold. I also have a new Synology disk station, 918 plus and four, four terabyte drives in it. I would like to use the Synology and move all my files and libraries there. And then with the apps and programs installed, turn on this new iMac and go from there. I have backups for all, of course. What I need is to not screw this up. How should I proceed? Should I set up the Synology now, move media now, and then set up the new Mac and find the Synology and go from there? Can I use Migration Assistant uh, from a higher capacity Mac and send the media to the Synology that way? Can I put them all on the same network and go from there? What do you think? So I think whatever you're going to do, you should do it before you migrate to the new Mac. So get your old Mac set up such that you can easily, you know, replicate that setup on on this new one with less storage because moving to a Mac with less storage is always kind of a weird thing. You know, migration assistant isn't really built to deal with this, although it'll it'll try and help you. But the way it'll help you is by picking and choosing what it is that you copy over, meaning you are going to leave something behind. So um, but here's the thing. The Synology really isn't the right place to store your active um, libraries like photos or music. And even storing your documents there is something that you want to do carefully. You certainly can. Like, absolutely. You can file share to them and and have them there. Um, and, and that's probably the easiest thing. So you could do that with file sharing. Uh, storing your documents there and just attach to that server and use that as your, you know, your document store. That's fine. You could also use Synology Drive to sync your documents there. But now you're thinking you're dealing with, do you have room on your Mac to have a local copy of things? So that's, that's a little different than offloading your storage, right? Music. I, I don't recommend this, but you can make it work. Uh, because they're just MP3 or M4A, you know, AAC files, whatever, even Flax or, you know, any of those things. Although I guess the music app on the Mac doesn't support Flax, but ALAX or, you know, Apple Lossus or whatever those are. Yes, it will work. But I don't recommend it because it gets weird. Photos will absolutely not work on a network. Oh, it's wait, 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 before we get to photos. I mean, not what I said is true. But we'll dig into why. But do, are you storing your music only on your Synology and playing it in the music app from there? I copy it. So I, I've copied um, my music folder 
to the Synology, and then I run, what is it, Audio Station? Oh. Or, but they have an audio server, a DLNA server. Totally. And that's what I do to send my, play my music. That, yeah, that totally works. And I, I yes, abs- 100%. That's totally fine. I'm, I was referring to playing music from within the music app with your music files uh, and library over on the Synology. And again, that'll work, right, but it gets right. weird. But no, I do the same thing as you. I, I have my music library local. It's on that external drive I mentioned earlier in the show. And then, uh, and then I clone that folder over to the Synology so that audio station and Plex and all of that have access to it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yep. Now photos. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of cool because when I upgraded my, uh, my setup here, you know, once my TV died, I had to, you know, 4K everything. Right. But uh, it's interesting because the, um, not only does my TV see the disc station because it's saying, hi, you know, I got music on here. You want to, or, or, and I think it advertises, yes, that has video as well. So it's kind of neat that I'm pretty sure both my, my uh, 4K Blu-ray and my TV can both see the Synology and it's, uh, Oh yeah. Uh, the various media that's on it, which, uh, which was kind of neat. Yeah, absolutely. Oh no, that's like, that's the way to go for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I use Plex for that. Yeah. I mean, for, for, yeah, I mean, for a while I was like, God, ah, do I really want my TV to be smart? And eh. it was like, yeah, I, I guess it can be useful. The right smart TV, you know, like we, we said recently, the, the LG TVs, smart TVs are, are fantastic. And, mm. and really for me, it has completely negated the need for an Apple TV box uh, because it, you know, the, the 2019 and later LG TVs now have the Apple TV app so you can play all your Apple TV content. And then, of course, they've got Netflix. They have Peacock, which Roku uh, doesn't have yet, but Peacock showed up right away on day one on my LG TV. So, like, they keep that stuff up to date. Um, yeah, and it's got, it oh was, yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. And, and the TV will tell you also like, yeah, when yeah. I turned the TV on, it was like, Hey, you know, a uh, peacock's available if you want it. Yeah. So, now we, uh, we basically kind of, only use our smart TV now to navigate everything. Um, I mean, we're not watching much on TiVo, which is an interesting thing. We noticed we hadn't launched our TiVo in, in weeks. Now it's summertime. There's not new episodes of things coming out, but I'm not convinced that we like if our TiVo died, I'm certain we would not replace it with another TiVo. Now Um, we would just use, Hmm. we would either use the DVR from Comcast, which isn't bad. Their X one DVR is pretty good. Um, Or we would do away. We've been talking about doing away with our, um, our, you know, our cable subscription entirely, you know, the cut the cord. I'm not sure that we're quite ready for that yet, but um, because a lot of the service, a lot of the things we watch uh, are via, apps on like the LG smart TV, but we get access to those things via because of our Comcast subscription. So we would have to pay and and do all that. But, um, but it, you know, it, it was a really interesting thing when I launched TiVo the other night, I'm like, Oh, what should we watch? Oh, let's look on TiVo. And it's like, wow, we haven't seen this interface in a long time. Huh? Interesting mm-hmm. to note, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, the right smart TV. I hear the Samsung smart TVs are are also um, you know up to date and like they they pay attention to them. It's not I, my problem was you know our last uh, plasma was a, a Panasonic and it was a smart TV, 
But I mean, to, to my knowledge, the apps were never updated. I mean, I'm sure they were at times, but it wasn't like what we're seeing, you know, with, with, from LG. So yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway. All right. Um, huh. what, how did we, we answer, answer that? What's that? that. <laughs> what did we answer? So I think we answered that for Tim. Well, we answered the the music part of it, but photos is the <laughs> is the thing that's a problem, right? Because you cannot store your photos on um on on anything that is a network device. It must be a local device. The way that that uh, that Apple has written right. photos to be managed. So that I, although I suppose I mean you could maybe. And honestly, for somebody in Ken's scenario, maybe the idea of using iSCSI would be an option. What iSCSI does is it, it's not native to Mac OS. So you'd need to run a third party iSCSI driver for, for the Mac, but the Synology supports it. And what iSCSI lets you do is carve out a blob of storage on your, your disk station that your Mac can then format as though it's a, you know, a locally connected drive. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, I mean, maybe that's the answer here. If you've got a reliable network connection locally, you know, unlike what I, evidently it seems I have today. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> or we've, uh, uh, I forgot who wrote in. Um, I mean, the other thing is you could use something other than photos, right? <laughs> True. Like I think we had someone write in suggesting, you know, you could use Plex to manage your photos. And it's like, mm -hmm. totally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah. 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 So personally, I like the Apple ecosystem and Same. being able to access my photos from anywhere using, using their cloud stuff. So yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. All right. Uh, let me, let me make sure. Cause we've taken lots of tangents on here. Um, yeah. So, so I scuzzy aside, what I would recommend for anyone in Ken's situation, including Ken is to get, uh, an external drive. You know, we, we mentioned some earlier in the show, whether or not it makes sense for you to do like the glyph, uh, Adam raid SSD, right. Or getting something, even a, a external spindle drive to store your stuff on, uh, you know, there, there are drives out there that will serve your purpose and you don't have to break the bank. And then that way you can just have an external drive attached to your Mac that stores all the big stuff. And that's essentially what I do. You know, I, I live, I think my Mac in the office, actually, I think it's a 512 in there. And I, I'm never hitting limits because I don't store the big stuff there. The big stuff is all on this external drive. And it's not a bad way to live, especially with an iMac. So there are a few options. You know, Seagate, if you want to go spindle-wise, Seagate's portable 4-terabyte um, spindle drive is 95 bucks Now, 120 megabytes a second versus, you know... 800 because for an SSD. So you obviously get what you pay for uh, the SanDisk. If jumping to an SSD, a SanDisk two terabyte extreme SSD is uh two ninety nine for two terabytes. And that now goes 500 megabytes per second. 
the thing we talked about recently, though, uh, is even better than that. The Samsung T7 two terabyte is two ninety nine, and you get a thousand megabytes a second. It'll do USB um, ten gig, and then and then there are the off brand ones. I found this Velco Vectotech. Sorry, John, a four terabyte SSD, five hundred eighty nine bucks. So you know, a little bit less than you would spend for two Samsungs. Uh, 540 megabytes. So it's five gig USB, but, um, I'd probably lean towards that, that Samsung T seven, um, two terabytes is the biggest that one will go. But, um, but I, you know, I feel like that's not a bad option. I don't know. What, what do you think, John? What would you, for, for this kind of scenario, what would you do? Uh, I, yeah, all all the ones you uh, have there. Yeah, I haven't honestly. I really haven't looked at uh, external direct connect drives for hmm. uh, a while. Pretty much the ones I have right now, I'm using for uh, making clones. But I, yeah, I'm really not. You don't have you don't have a need for media it. Yeah, on a direct connect drive because it's all on. On your internal, all my Synologies, Synologies, oh. and Drobo as well. I still use. Them. Do you really? What do you What do you use a Drobo for? Uh, video and uh, uh, uh backing up my uh, videos and uh, okay, uh, photos. Oh, okay, all right. So pretty yeah. much, yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Cool. Yeah, it's it's still good for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm amazed it's still working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that uh, it hasn't kicked the drive out of it in quite a while. I think I told you I have like a 15-year-old drive in there. Like one of the first one, um, I think it's a Hitachi uh, one one gig drive or one. You're a one brave man. Or, yeah. Well, hey, it's, uh, the drive seems to think it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the Drobo does. So. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, if it like, right. I'm starting to have problems. I have some 14 terabyte Iron Wolf drives that are maybe 18 months old. And I've had two of them uh, begin to fail recently. I think there was something wrong with the batch. Um, so, and I was looking at replacing drives. I, I had shown you that I'd ordered like four of the 16 terabyte Iron Wolves. Um, which they're like 500 bucks a piece. So it was like two grand worth of drives. And then I stopped that order because I realized that while the iron wolves have like the cool little interface with the Synology to report all kinds of extra data, the Seagate Exos mm -hmm. drives EXOS are way faster. They are uh, rated mm -hmm. for like triple the, the service life of the iron wolves. And they're supposed to be more expensive, but for whatever reason, and I know supply chains are all screwed up right now because of, of you know, uh, coronavirus and all that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. They, um, they, uh, um, I'll explain why I'm, I, I, what I was distracted by, but, they, but they're way cheaper. It was like 300 bucks for a 16 terabyte Exos or maybe 350 instead of 500. So I've ordered a couple of those to test them and see how they do. But I mean, like, it seems like those are the, mm. um, those are the ones. Yeah. Now, um, what I got, John, was a, a warning that my disk writes were too slow here from Mimo Live. And my guess is that I hit whatever wall that is 
that hit zero gigs available on this drive. And so I'm curious to see what the finder is going to report in terms of free space. There it is. The finder is now reporting 236 gigs available. So whatever, uh, yeah, whatever purging needed. Somebody got a nudge saying, Hey, you better free this space up. That's correct. Yeah. And then it took, you know, yeah. it, it, it did its job, but it, you know, slowed things down a little bit while it actually freed up the space. So yeah, there you go. I'm curious if you look at your processes of delete D is in there somewhere. Well, I think it would have, if it were involved, it would have been there, but I, I it's not there now because the, the job has yeah. finished. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't looking, but I would guess that, yeah, delete D would, would based on what you found last week that, yeah, that would be it. I don't know, man. It's craziness. It's craziness. All right. Um, all this. I want to uh, I want to take a minute and talk about our sponsors. If uh, if we're finished with all this, that work for you, Mister Braun? Absolutely. All right. Our first sponsor today is Otherworld Computing, one of my favorite companies uh, that exists in our market, and because they always have the things that I need, or at least most often do. And they've got something new out. It's their Thunderbolt 3 mini dock. Yeah, that's right. They've been hard at work figuring out what we need. And here they come again. Their Thunderbolt 3 mini dock over there at OWC. It's a bus powered multi adapter dock. So that means it's got two USB-A ports. One of them's USB-3. One of them's USB-2. It's got a gigabit Ethernet port, right? And... Dual 4K capable HDMI ports. So this means you can connect this up to your Thunderbolt 3 capable MacBook and have two monitors and you've got USB 2 and USB 3 and gigabit Ethernet. Nice little Thunderbolt travel dock. I mean, it doesn't have to be a travel dock. Obviously, you plug it in at your desk and it stays there. But really great thing when you get somewhere and you want to plug into Ethernet and don't want to deal with patchy Wi-Fi, no problem. You know, then you've got USB, which is great. You can connect a drive up to the USB 3 port, you know, and then if you've got like a mouse or something else that you want to connect up to the USB 2 port, no problem. Or even just charge your phone, right? No problem, because your computer will do that, because that's how that works. You got to check this out. So you're going to go to MacSales.com and check out the new OWC Thunderbolt 3 mini dock and everything else they have. Our thanks to Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com for sponsoring this episode. Have you thought about your wireless bill lately? You probably have, and you're probably looking at it saying, what am I doing here? Especially if you're with one of the big wireless providers, you know, because the monthly bills from those, as we all know, can be way higher than we think we should be paying but what are our options? Well, our next sponsor, Mint Mobile, is your option. We've been using and testing and trying and I was going to say experimenting with, but also relying on Mint Mobile for over a year here now. And it's been fantastic. And the cool thing is with Mint Mobile, you can cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month and save hundreds of dollars by switching to Mint Mobile. So for anybody out there who's looking to save without sacrificing service, switching to Mint Mobile is a no 
brainer by going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail and all of that stuff. Mint Mobile can pass significant savings on to you. It's like they were social distancing before that was even a thing. They just figured out that this was a better economic model for them and especially for you. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. Of course, you can bring your own phone. They support all the great Apple features like visual voicemail and all of that good stuff, which means that you just get the SIM from them. You plug it in. You're good to go. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash MGG. That's mintmobile.com slash MGG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Mint Mobile for sponsoring this episode. You ever need to search for something online that you don't want people to know you're searching for? Maybe, uh, you know, it's a gift for somebody. I, I found for me, sometimes researching some of these theater shows that I'm doing lead people who are watching to believe that I'm interested in things that I might not actually be interested in because of the subject matter of some of these shows. And so you think, why not just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode doesn't actually hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your ISP, your Internet service provider, can still see every single website you've ever visited. And some of those ISPs are using that data in ways that we don't actually like. So that's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN at these times, right? Because this is what ExpressVPN can allow me to do. And ExpressVPN is super easy. One click and it's enabled. And that means, because it's a VPN, as we all know here, that it reroutes your internet connection through a tunnel. So all your ISP can see is that you're Connected to ExpressVPN, they can't see what you're doing. That's key. And ExpressVPN keeps all of your information secure by encrypting that tunnel with powerful encryption. And then they also have their trusted server paradigm. It's so cool. Their servers essentially run from RAM and there's no saving of the data. So if the server switched off, everything that happened on that server is gone. This is how they've built things so that they simply cannot have anything tracking you protect your online activity today with the vpn rated number one by cnet and wired visit our exclusive link expressvpn.com slash mgg then you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package that's expressvpn.com slash mgg expressvpn.com slash mgg to learn more and our thanks to expressvpn for sponsoring this episode all right, Mr. Braun, why don't you take us to Ben, shall you? Shall we? Uh, we can do that. Okay, cool. Um, so Ben actually answered his own question here. I like that. I didn't know the answer. Um, so yeah, we were talking, uh, last couple of weeks there, um, people were like, how do I get, um, my touch bar Mac to let me do things that I was able to do on prior machines. Mm. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people want to do, or you can do, and it's built in to, uh, and it's actually an option uh, when you configure the touch bar is sleep is one option. Um, and Ben wants to sleep, but here's the thing. He doesn't want, 
to do system sleep. He just wants to do display sleep. Uh, I didn't know how to do that. So he shared with us um, one way you can do that. And uh, so one is that he found something on Stack Exchange um, suggesting that you can use Better Touch Tool, which actually I've... I should look at Better Touch Tool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A little more. But um, I mean, the nice thing about the option that I offered is that it's built in, but it doesn't do quite what we what he wants. So one thing is that Better Touch Tool can do a uh, screen only sleep. And then another thing that he found is you can do. Uh, oh, this is a blast from the past. Um, dedicated sleep corners. Um, you can. I forget exactly where. Which uh, system preferences it? Is it display? I think it's display somewhere. You can define a corner where if you put the cursor, the, the screen will go to sleep, right? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I I uh, is it in screensaver, desktop and screensaver hot corners? Yeah, that's it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the third one, um, uh, let's see. Um, an article here, which, yeah, I couldn't read it because I don't have an account here, but um, uh, a Python script that can put the cursor there um, and then have oh. it being called by uh, a launcher app. Okay, that's kind of neat. Oh, that's interesting. I like that idea. Yeah. All right. So, uh, all right. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, for, good uh, stuff. T- telling us how to just sleep your display and not the whole thing. Yeah, that's pretty good. I like that. Right. Because, yeah, I just leverage what's already there and then and then emulate it, simulate it, whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right. Um, you know, we were talking, John, about uh, some CarPlay syncing connection issues in a previous episode. And uh, one listener had them on on his new car. And I, I mentioned how I had had them with um, with my car and Wayne heard this and had something to share. He said, um, syncing the iPhone to the automobiles operating system has been a problem over the last two new vehicles I've owned. Last fall, he says, I purchased a 2020 German manufactured vehicle with upgrades for electronic capabilities. Upon connecting my iPhone, everything worked for about 10 days. Suddenly, syncing my phone to the car's system was not stable. The dealership's geek specialist worked on finding a solution with me for an hour. No joy. He scheduled a service appointment. The repair tech approached me in the waiting area and said he believes he has the solution to the CarPlay problem. He handed me my ODB2 device that I had been plugging into my cars for a number of years. It was, of course, the automatic device that was popular over the past five years or so. He showed me a service bulletin from the manufacturer that said, in no uncertain terms, do not plug anything in to the ODB2 or the ODB receptacle. Or is it OBD? I always get it wrong. I think it's ODB, right, John? I don't know. Uh, He says, I never plugged in the automatic again and CarPlay worked fine ever since. And then, of course, automatic uh, back in May uh, closed their doors and all of that. So that solved that problem. When automatic closed their doors, I removed my automatic connector. I also have not experienced any CarPlay issues since then. And I hadn't really thought about it until I got Wayne's email. So, so 
maybe those things that are, you know, doing Bluetooth and, and more. I think the automatic one was doing um, uh, uh, cell connection on the most recent model. Uh, it wasn't even. Oh, yeah. I mean, it did Bluetooth, but then it also had the cell connection. So. Um, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So thank you, Wayne. Uh, John, before, well, you know what? Go to Louie. I, I have, I think I have something to, uh, to announce, but I'll, but I'll, I'm going to let you do, I'm going to let you finish first. Oh yeah. All right. Yeah. Or Louie. Yes. Yes. It's Louie. Um, just to follow up on the last episode where you were talking about programming function keys to do a shutdown. I noticed that with keyboard maestro, you can assign the same function key to multiple macros. When you do that, you get a small menu, see below, when you activate the function key of your choice, F2, for example. So you could program one F key to show you sleep, shutdown, restart, etc. Just thought you'd like to know. Yeah, cool. That's cool. So if, uh, if you're into keyboard maestro, if you have a keyboard maestro, then uh, uh, it's nice that it gives you that flexibility. Yeah. Oh, man. Are you not using keyboard maestro yet? No. Oh, dude. It's like, I don't know. I, I like the, the what we do for the show here would not be possible without keyboard maestro and lots yeah. of other things that I do. But like, mm -hmm. yeah, mapping function keys to like, you know, if somebody's watching on the video, I can show them just me or I can show them just you or I can show them us or I could even show the Mac oh. Geekab logo. Mm -hmm. And uh, and all of that is happening because of using keyboard maestro as the glue to take what I'm pressing on the keyboard and like mapping it to other things. So and it's super easy. Like it just it's just little blocks of you just connect things together, kind of like um, uh, automator in that sense. But but sort of mm -hmm. not constrained. So, yeah. 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 All right, John, I, I, uh, I, you know, I hate to curse us, but I believe I fixed the network issues. So right. I had a theory that something at the house was, you know, barfing extra traffic across. It's clearly something was barfing things into the network and, and locally because I, I was doing my my tried and true ping test where I ping mm -hmm. three things. I ping Apple dot com. I ping um, uh my cable modem and I also then ping my router and I noticed that all three of those would have issues at exactly the same time. So that tells me, all right, it's a local issue, right? If it's cause I, cause then you know where, you know, where it is in the chain and uh, like crap, you know, so, okay. So we were dealing with it. It was mostly fine. And, but you were, you know, your audio would get robotic and things like that. Uh, while the, 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 a, a secret that's not so much a secret, but, um, I always pre-record our ad reads so that uh, I can get them tight and all that for all of you. I don't like them. I'd like to make sure we get in what we're supposed to get in. Honestly, our job with the ads, uh, as we see it, is to interest you enough to visit the URL of the site. That's where our job, quite frankly, ends. Whether you buy after that is completely up to you. So part of my philosophy is if I tell you too much. If we do five minute ads instead of, you know, 90 second ads, you might not have a reason to visit the site. Right. But also now I've used up five minutes of your time per ad. So now that's 15 minutes of the show. So anyway, I pre-record them to get them tight, get everything in there for all of you and, and keep them tidy and all that stuff. But it buys me a little time in the middle of the show. 
And so I went down to the office. I ran down to the office and I unplugged the house from the network. And then I came back up here and I looked and it hadn't fixed anything. So I ran back down there and I plugged the house back into the network and I came back up here. And I, I had also opened up uh, a terminal window for my iMac down in the office to see if it was just this computer or if that one was suffering from it too. And that one was suffering from it too. So that that's what made me think, okay, it's something coming from the house. I thought, well, okay, if it's not coming from the house, it's definitely localized here. Like, I don't have that many devices here. I thought, wait a minute, what's the iMac in the office doing? So I just shut that down. Problem solved. Hmm. I mean, symptom solved. I don't know what the problem was. And it's entirely possible that when I fire the iMac back up, it's going to be fine. But, um, but since shutting it down, I have not seen any of those ping dropouts or packet loss or anomalies or anything. So I don't know. I don't know. But it, that is the machine that rebooted yesterday, remember? So, hmm, hmm I know. That's not a good sign. I, I, as, as listener Ken, um, <laughs> during, the, during the tangent fest, as listener Ken uh, advised us or informed us, new iMacs are in short supply. So um, I, I'm hoping I don't have a hardware problem with that one. So, But it is, you know, five years old. So I don't know. Yeah, it should last longer than that. But, you know, sometimes that's how things go. All right. So I think we're in good shape, which is good. So it makes me more comfortable. I like that. I don't like sweating network issues during the show. Uh, let's talk about hardware upgrades, John. A popular topic. Ralph actually has, he kind of has a, a question and, a, and some advice all wrapped into one. Really, he just asked if we like his advice. And uh, here are some thoughts on upgrading a Mac in the next 12 months. He says, uh, I've outlined my things, but I really want to know what you guys think. And he says, so my Mac computer purchase slash replacement strategy has been select the model and features with the intention of owning for the long haul. Maintain anticipating replacement in five to seven years. Uh, if possible, avoid bleeding edge models. If possible, avoid the latest and greatest models that introduce troublesome features and replace when the unit can no longer install the current version of Mac OS. He said, my main iMac is a 2015, 15 inch MacBook pro performing well, but approaching obsolescence and certainly in that five to seven year life expectancy replacement window, two new innovations coincident with the replacement timetable. Of course, the OS upgrade to big Sur and the hardware upgrade to Apple Silicon, what to do when to take the plunge. He says, uh, my plan subject to change, depending on the advice of those who know better, hold on to the 2015 inch, uh, install Big Sur when it's released and monitor feedback on the Apple Silicon Macs as they are introduced to users uh, providing comments. Defer upgrading to the new hardware until the 2015 can no longer install the current Mac OS and or the wrinkles are ironed out uh, of the move uh, to Apple Silicon Macs. Questions or comments? So, I actually kind of like this plan. I mean, there's one part about this plan that I don't like, John, but I agree with. So little cognitive dissonance here. And that's the keep your Mac until it won't install the current Mac OS. I don't like that. That's the, the right path to take because I don't like someone else deciding when I should be upgrading my hardware, but it is the right path to take like it for not for everyone, 
But for those of us that, you know, are, are doing these things where we want to keep pushing our Macs and doing things with them and also maintaining security updates, although Apple does maintain security updates for a while after an OS uh, is, you know, for, for older OSs uh, for at least a couple of years. So, but like for me, I definitely wouldn't keep an iMac in my office or here in the studio if it wasn't capable of running the latest Mac OS. Um, you know, I, in the studio, I, I am always slower to upgrade because, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and I don't like to move things I don't need to move. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I like, I like this idea of, of, you know, kind of leapfrogging past the first wave of Apple Silicon. It, this is definitely one of those do as I say, not as I do things. If an Apple Silicon iMac were announced within the time frame that it would make sense for me to hold on to the, the, you know, five year old now iMac that's in the office, then I would almost certainly buy an Apple Silicon iMac for the office. No question. But, uh, but there you go. So I don't know. What, what do you, what do you think about his plan and, and just this stuff in general, John? Um, I'm okay with it in, in general. Um, I would just, you know, when you're ready to buy, yeah, keep an eye on the, uh, on the refurb store and get something a couple of years old, which is exactly what I did when I got my mini. Right. But not my not my 2019 macbook pro right. because i wanted new new shiny new so. shiny yeah but even with new shiny like if you wait you know certainly if you wait if you're willing to wait six months from release date but even usually somewhere it's in that you know two to four month time frame that they wind up appearing on the refurb store so it depending on your timing and i, I mean we've both been in that boat like when i bought my macbook air there was no way that I was going to, I looked at the timing. They released it mid November or whatever it was. I knew we had CES coming up that, you know, that year. And it was like, I'm definitely not traveling with my, you know, nine year old MacBook air again. It just wasn't up to the task anymore. So it was like, okay, well I paid whatever an extra $150 or $200 or whatever it worked out to have been to have the, to, to get that machine in time for us to go to CES. And then I was like, okay, like that was a premium I was willing to have paid. And I knew that, you know, come the end of January or whatever it was that yep, here they come. And sure enough, they showed up on the refurb store. I was like, yep, but, but I got to have mine when I needed it. So, but yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, definitely wait. And I would do that with the Apple Silicon max again, if the timing allowed me to do that, like I wasn't in a crunch, like if the machine in the office dies or is on its way out, then that changes things a little bit. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. And um, and you should get a one terabyte SSD and 16 gigs of RAM because that's what I did on both of my machines. <laughs> yeah, I, you know. My only warning, the, 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 only, the only thing, we, we've had a number of people write in, and I always think this in the back of my mind. They're like, oh, yeah, I got, you know, a Mac with, you know, don't skimp on the size of the, because you can't replace the, the drive that's inside. Don't skimp on the size of the, the drive. It saddens me when I, when people write in and say, Oh, I only got, you know, 128 gig sure. SSD or something. And I'm like, that's, that's, 
that's pretty Th- yeah though. thankfully apple doesn't let you do that anymore like the 256 is the the lower limit on those right, right. i would i would say i agree with you don't skimp on it but also don't necessarily follow my advice in terms of picking like the specific size or john's advice picking the specific size because what we pick is what we know we need um you know i am very comfortable down in the office with 512 uh, I had this one down there and, and this is the 2019 iMac with a one terabyte drive. Uh, and I had it down there, but migrating from this to the, 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 you know, back to the 512. I mean, I had, I was using more than 512, but most of it was just like things in my downloads folder that I hadn't pruned out. Like it wasn't my active stuff because it's just like, I know what I need and 512 is enough. Uh, because I use an external drive to store all of the, those things. And so I can get away. Would I buy a one terabyte in a new machine? Yeah, probs, but um, not like I know that I'm okay with 512. So I don't, I certainly wouldn't buy a two terabyte drive. It, that's just for me, that would be overkill. And I would have to change things around to use it. And I'm not sure that even makes sense. You know what I'm saying? So, but mm-hmm. for a laptop, that's a little bit different, although I do fine with 256 in my laptops. Like, it's just not a problem in my MacBook Air. Mm-hmm, okay. But but again, it like that doesn't necessarily mean that's like a universal truth. It's just I know me. Um, if, if I were to do a lap, like when I do a laptop again, I'd probably go 512 or maybe one terabyte, depending on pricing. Uh, but again, with laptops, I'm totally fine with with 256 like i'm i i I happened to look the other night and i have like i don't know almost 100 gigs free on my on my laptop so it's like yeah all right cool but again that's the way i use things so yeah right yeah in my case you know especially with the example that i gave before my photo library is 141 gigs so i need at least that much space yes however i don't store my photo library on any internal drive i have Ooh, right. Because my laptop doesn't store my entire library. There's no reason for that. I have optimized storage turned on for that. Um, I have optimized storage turned on here for the photo library in the studio. Cause I don't need a second copy of it in the house. I, I have all my photos downloaded on my Mac downstairs, but they're saved on that external drive. So yeah. So I'm with you. My, yeah, I think my photo library is yeah about that size somewhere in the yeah, hundred and hundred to 200 gig range, but I am, I'm not storing that on all my devices. I don't, I don't need it. You know, just like my phone, I don't have the whole photo library on my phone, but it's fine. Right. You know? So, yeah. And the same with my music library, right? Same thing. My mu- I don't even know what the size of my music library is. It's crazy. But, and, the, and then there's like my Plex library, which is a whole other thing that we probably shouldn't talk about because it's, it's embarrassing how big it is. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Karsten. Karsten asks, all right, it, it shares from episode 818. He says, uh, listener wanted to segment his main network from his IOT devices. Karsten went a little nuts and I like this. He says, I did the same a while back and my goals were defined as one, keep it simple two keep it secure. Uh, the price on the setup was defined by risk. Since the network is going to be to protect attacks on my main network, I was willing to spend a bit extra on the setup. So here goes. I simply signed up for a second Internet connection from a separate ISP for 30 bucks a month. I installed a new Synology router. I installed a Fingbox. I configured a few Synology security package 
packages and I was done. The thought is that my main network also uses a Synology router. If the router should die, I can borrow the other. So I have a backup. Great. Uh, if my main internet goes down, I could then also borrow the internet from a different provider. My main network's simple. I have my Synology router with Wi-Fi turned off. And then I use Eero Pros, uh, three of them in bridge mode, all connecting to my one gig up and down subscription. Basking. Uh since you cannot know how IoT devices are truly architected, you cannot trust the devices and should separate them. He says you could VLAN that setup. However, a separate network ensures that it stays separate with no misconfiguration. Uh, it offers replacement components to my main network and is simple to troubleshoot. Yeah, I'll give you that. All my IoT devices only offer HomeKit. If you have devices that support HomeKit, Amazon, and Google, then you have only configured HomeKit. But the plumbing for Amazon and Google is still there. That is a very good point. And uh, configured to be in provisioning mode. What could possibly go wrong? He says, one could say that I'm crazy, but why is someone deciding to separate IOT devices in the first place? Well, that's true. If you're going to separate your IOT devices out, I like what Karsten has done here. I mean, it like there is, you know, truly an air gap between the two separate internet connections, not on the same network. I'm not sure. Like integration wise, I guess with HomeKit you can get away with that. Um, with some other integrations, I'm not convinced that you could. You know, like you know, like for example, I've, I, the printer is the thing that always comes to mind. Like you can't segment that off to the other network because now you can't print to it, right? So, um, but I guess what is I'm curious what Karsten would do to make HomeKit work because HomeKit all works on your local Wi-Fi, right? Like that's how you connect to these things. So how are you, maybe Karsten's got some kind of HomeKit hub device on that second network. You know, I like, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I like, I mean, I, if you're going to do it, I like kind of going all the way like Karsten has done here. I, I don't, I really don't do this. I trust my router, also a Synology router, to notice and catch if and when IoT devices go haywire um, because that's what can be done. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know about having it on a completely separate network. I don't know how you would manage all of that unless you just jump to the other network to change HomeKit settings. That seems a little inconvenient. I don't know. I don't know. But I like the... Uh, I like the kind of the, the, the geek um, dedication on that going all the way. So mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think, man? Uh, not for me. Not for you. Okay. okay. <clears throat> I'm really not concerned if someone accesses my IOT devices. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the concern is valid that, you know, an IOT device is we have seen many IOT devices with security holes that don't get patched and therefore get hacked. Right. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you know, that that's where this concern comes from is they're not mm -hmm. as a family of devices. They're not the most secure things. Um, now some vendors are way better than others, uh, which is no great surprise there. Some take this seriously. Some, you know, don't. Um, and so, you know, your IOT device, like what I was having here on my network earlier could easily have been caused by an IOT device misbehaving. Turns out it wasn't uh, because we, we seem to have isolated it off to, to my iMac 
which which is slightly more concerning than if it were just an IoT, like a camera or something I could just unplug. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I have quite a few IoT devices from a lot of different vendors and I, I trust my, well, A, I'm paying pretty close attention to my network most of the time. Uh, so I tend to notice when things are a little bit wrong. Again, I know what normal looks like. So there's that, mm-hmm. right. You know, and then, and then I trust my router to, to protect things. I do. Synology lets me segment off devices, you know, essentially for like family profiles. So I can have one for me and one for my wife and one for each of my kids and devices are attached. And then you can set how you want those devices to be allowed on the network and also how you want them to be secured and what type of blocking you want. And so my IOT devices are all on their own profile, which is also the default profile on my network. So if a new device comes on, it gets the IOT profile until I give it more permission than that. But it blocks like everything that it could block and I'll tell you, it, it is it is astounding to me that two or three times a day from different devices, I'll see from my Synology router that, oh, yeah, I blocked a connection to Facebook from, you know, this device or to Snapchat from that device. Mm-hmm. I'm always like, that's really weird. Like, why would an IoT device just randomly be trying to connect to Facebook? But, you know, but those are the mm-hmm. things I do. I, I put up, you know, very, very tight walls and and I, you know, that I trust it. So I don't know, but it is interesting that they try to do that. I always wonder if those are errant things, like maybe one of my kids iPhones for whatever reason jumped to the, and I can dig in, but I've never seen it. It's always been, you know, some device like the TV or something is like, oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, or something like that. The TiVo is like, yeah, I'm going to talk to Facebook. It's like, "Mm, no, don't think so. Don't know why, (laughs) you know, and maybe they're using Facebook's tracking pixel for things like it, it might very well be that. And, And I'm fine not having that happen so yeah mm-hmm. yeah i don't know do you do any like security profiling of your iot devices or anything like that no okay well, that's, i mean it's fine that's how it works cool well we made it through mostly unscathed john do we have anything else we want to go through or uh are we saving the rest of this for next week my friend yeah i think uh think we're good i think we're good i agree i'm i'm into it it's good yeah thanks for listening everybody thanks for hanging out with us sorry about the uh the weird little network issues i'm glad we're solving it i'm, I'm sure i will have um things to report about my imac hope <laughs> i hope good things um it's a little weird that it was a rebooted yesterday, which I think might have been a thing that it it chose to do on its own, which isn't all obviously isn't a great thing, but uh, but you know that's what keeps uh, geek life interesting, John. I do want to take a minute yeah. and thank. What's that? Yeah, my uh, my TiVo rebooted the other day. Oh, which? Uh oh. Well, because when the hard means. hard drives die, that's bad. Um, yeah, I I got to um. They have a, a magic key combo you can do to run smart tests and stuff like that. So yeah. I have to Uh-oh. figure that out. Yikes. So, uh, so as far as I know, the Bolt, um, you can just pop a new hard drive in. It wasn't, you didn't have to go through all these contortions like you did, had to with the old oh. TiVo. As oh, far as I know. That's good. Okay. Still. Yeah. Yeah. Remember the, the, 
remember the you had to like clone your drive with a special tool with a different file yeah, system. Yeah, and it was using this weird MFS file. Yeah, that was it. MFS. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So that's not a thing anymore. We we TiVo owners don't need to worry about that anymore. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been checking some of the the forms and yeah. uh, allegedly you can put in a drive that's at least the size of what's in there. If you put in something larger, it may not okay. use the whole thing. Oh, so. interesting. Right, because it doesn't know to... I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, interesting. Well, fingers are crossed for you, my friend, I hope. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's a... Yeah, that's never good. Because you would lose your... Whatever you have saved on your TiVo, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. Well, you can archive it off with CTiVo. Oh, uh, yeah. Why not? Well, it could be protected. Yes, that's true. The protected stuff you can't archive off. That's right. Yeah. 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 The other day I wanted to pull something off and have little copyrights. Little red symbol or whatever. Yeah. 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 CTVO's great though. I've used that, you know, back when we were allowed to travel. Um, and, and also when there were new shows on TV, uh, I would, if, I, if there was something I wanted to watch, like while I was away, I would just leave CTVO running on my computer. And, uh, and it went, once the episode finished recording on the TiVo, it would grab it, convert it, and I would have it save it to a folder so that it would automatically add to my Plex library. And then I just go open up Plex wherever I was in the world and hit play. Pretty good. So, cool. yeah. Yeah. All right. I do want to take uh, a minute and thank all of our premium subscribers. Uh, you can learn more at MacGeekab.com slash premium. We have several different uh, tiers that uh, you can contribute over time or one-time contributions or both. And this really is for those of you who uh, can and are interested in supporting us directly. We definitely appreciate it. It is sort of how things work here. It's We have our sponsors, we have uh, our premium program, and it's a blend of uh, all of that together is what... Uh, what make allows us to continue doing what we're doing and and we love it don't don't get me wrong but it does allow us to do it and we 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 don't take that lightly so thank you uh thank you to john from decatur robert from clearwater Stephen from Costa Mesa, Everett from Marina, Olga from Bellevue, Corey from Kenmore, Michael from Naperville, Richard from Pontrug, Mary from Monterey, Jason from Charlestown, Jason from St. Louis, Jeff from Del Mar, Luann from Albuquerque, Larry from Phoenix, Norton from Bethesda, Edward from Crum, uh, Gerard from Meridian, Michael from Troy, Gary from Babylon, Craig from we don't know where because... Craig's been a subscriber for longer than we've tracked that. Ward from Mesa, Joel from We Don't Know Where, Paul from Fishers, Mark from Milford, Dan from We Don't Know Where, Tony from We Don't Know Where, John, Neil from West Hartford, John from Sonora, Paul from Tunbridge Wells, Richard from Quakertown, Graham from Yelverton. All right, cool. John from Vivi, Dennis from Chapel Hill, Greg from Los Angeles, Doug from North York, Bruce from Sterling, Richard from Quakertown, Abel from Santa Rosa, Mark from New Fairfield. Hey, I used to live there. Peter from Auburn, Dennis from Chapel Hill. We were in New Fairfield, in fact, when uh, when Mac Keycap started. Believe it or not, the very I think the very first episode was recorded in my office there. So yeah, uh, Bruce from Alpharetta, Paula from Half Moon Bay, Bob, Doctor Mac, working smarter for Mac users, Levitus in Austin. Thanks, Bob. 
John from Vivi and James from San Antonio. Thanks so much to all of you for your contributions. You rock. Like I said, we couldn't do this without you. So awesome. 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 Uh, go leave us a review, please go to uh, MacGeekUp.com slash reviews and send us a, a review. Uh, we love those five-star reviews. They really do help us and uh, makes a big difference. It allows us to keep the network going, <laughs> uh, but it does. It exposes the show to other people and, and, um, and that is a good thing. So yeah. What do you have to say, John, anything before we're out of here? No. Okay. Nothing. Thank you. Yeah. There you go. To all of you. Indeed. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Of course, the ones we mentioned in this episode, maxsales.com, mintmobile.com slash MGG, expressvpn.com slash MGG. And of course, our ongoing sponsors, smilesoftware.com slash podcast, airbones.com, linode.com slash MGG. You all rock. Visit them. Visit macgeekup.com slash sponsors to see all the deals from them and others. Okay. I don't know. It was close, John. You know, we we almost it almost happened during this episode with those network problems, but we we made it. We made it through unscathed. You know, we um we didn't get caught. That's good. So don't you get caught, Mace. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>